Hello, friends. This is Andrew Sweeney from Parallax Academy. This is just a quick reminder to subscribe and like our YouTube channel and sign up for our newsletter to keep abreast of all of our activities. And if you want to get more involved, Parallax Academy has a membership program, coaching and mentorship, as well as several new courses and study groups. Come and join our convivial hub and network with some of the best thinkers, movers, and visionaries in the world today. And please consider contributing by becoming a patron or making a donation. Join us to help rebuild spirituality, rethink philosophy, and reimagine culture. The links to all of our activities are in the description below. Andrew and I were at, we did a Cosmorotic Humanism seminar, which was a, a wild holy ride, I would say. Is that a fair, is that fair, Andrew? It was a wild, it was a wild ride and there was much holiness and sparks uh, uh, going on. All kinds of things going on. Great to see you, brother. Yeah, great to see you too. And, and it was very great to meet you and meet everybody in Maple. It, uh, it was, yeah, it was a great trip. I, I was really happy to meet your community and, and also young and old people and, and the, the whole mix of the Zen community and Shoryo's community with your community. Because I practiced yeah. Zen for a long time. I felt very at home at that monastery. And, and uh, anyway. Yeah, no, it's beautiful. And maybe that's a place to start. And then you, you I, we follow you. We're in your, your home here. So I'm super excited to hear where you're going to inquire. And I'm delighted to be here. I just want to say just, just two short things. One is, and they're both really the same thing, close personal relationship. The way we love each other is everything. So Soryu and I have really kind of fallen in love with each other. We really love each other. I love Soryu, right? And, you know, one of the reasons we came to Vermont and he was excited Right, is that we have this this think tank, which is this band of outrageous lovers. Our public cover is a think tank committed to responding to the meta crisis with a new story of value. And Soryu, my friend Soryu, has started a monastery, a very beautiful monastery, which is committed to you know their meditation, their practices in response to existential risk. So there's a natural, you know, depth of, but it only works when there's a depth of love between people. And so the second thing I just want to mention, I can't not mention, Andrew, is that really, truly my closest, you know, beloved friend in the world um, passed away um, five days ago, mm. Allie Kempton. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, actually, you know, and I, you know, I, I've spoken to Sally pretty much every day for the last 13, 14 years, right? Not like twice a week, but kind of every day. Mm. And, you know, she was my, my sister and, you know, beloved sister. And, you know, we were, you know, each other's kind of world family, you know, we were family to each other, like the closest family and, and, and best friends and deep Dharma beloveds. And I actually can't, I've dreaded this day for many, many years. I knew it would come and I'm beyond heartbroken. So I just want to just bring Sally into the space and that she's here with us. And she, I'll just give you a, a text. So I just show you, she watched our last Parallax dialogue. Wow. Right. And she, I just want to, I just, with your permission, I'll just take one second. I'll just read it to you. Um, right. Right afterwards. Right. She said, wow, you were great. And you and Andrew are great on Parallax. Right. I loved it. And I love your peeps that came and, and, and their peeps. And this is a beautiful thing. Right, this is her text here, right? <laughs> nice. Okay. So, so she was, she was with us in the last dialogue and just, just invoking and being with Sally. So I turn to you, brother. It's great to see you. So in terms of 
what I was thinking of of asking you about today. Um, I I've been actually looking at Sorio's work mm-hmm. uh, uh, quite a bit in the past couple of weeks, and I've also been reading this book, which with this enormous fat book <laughs> about uh, Zavatai Zevi. So I probably said Zavitai his name Zvi. wrong. Zavitai Zvi. Subtitle right. Um, so, so the, my my initial thing that I thought of asking you about it is just g- going into deep into what you mean by Hebrew wisdom, because in our last conversation you distinguished between Jewish the Jewish religion and he- Hebrew wisdom. So I'm interested in, in that uh, what that is, you know, as a as a non-Jew uh, who's who studies a little bit Hebrew wisdom from from an outsider right. point of view right that's one thing and then the other the other the other inquiry i have is just about religion in general and 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 the the movement of religion in terms of what uh what Shoryo was calling dadaism uh his he he was talking about what he calls this new religion that's coming with with ai so those are two kind of separate things uh but but um right so let's let's know let's and i just want to that's great. No, no, I'm I'm interrupting. So that that is that okay? Is this okay to jump in? Please jump in. Yeah. No, no, totally. So, so first, I just want to say one more thing. Um, one second. KK, Christina, when come, I just want to say one thing about you, love. <laughs> so Christina just passed by. So I just want to just say something also about in in the post conventional world. I just want to just deeply. I'm I'm just saying something to honor you, love. So I wanted you to hear it. Right, that you know, KK and really, our love lists are too short. And KK is, of course, my my. Many of you know Dr. Christina Kincaid. KK is my beautiful partner, and really modeled, and we're so close. Modeled so beautifully, you know, and supported Sally and I, and my love for Sally, and Sally loved KK, and KK loved Sally, right? And you know, the capacity to actually hold a wider field of love. You know, so I just want to just not let that go unnoticed as KK was walking by as I was talking about, you know, beloved Sally and just KK, just how you've, you've, you've held us and we've held you and just how beautiful you've been, you know, this whole week. Thank you. Right. Yay. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. And th- that reminds me, uh, Mark, of the last thing that's been in my mind in terms of an inquiry, and that is going deeper in, into the, the notion of, of Eros after listening right. to your conversation free, free. with with yeah. uh with layman okay so three we've got three inquiries so let's let's take them one at a time so first maybe let's start with um with with dataism so so Suryo, right and Surya and i are, are deep in conversation we're actually going to do at the monastery the think tank of the monastery are going to come to there again we're going to be doing every six months a seminar deep into the kind of cosmorotic humanism, new story of value. And this next one's going to be on the emergent world religion. And mm. I wrote an article in 2011, which Zach read back in the day called World Spirituality Essentials, where, where Ken and I kind of formulated an initial vision of a world religion. And maybe someone will put in the chat box, maybe KZ, you may you may have it someplace perhaps, or, or Krista. Um, world spirituality essential. So we're going to enlarge that article and have a real conversation about world religion. And, and Sori and I want to spend a day talking about, you know, kind of, and, and Sori really hasn't focused on, and but I'll, we'll talk about that when he's here. So I don't want to talk about someone when they're not there. Hasn't really sure. focused on arm. He's focused on practice 
And we have to kind of talk out, you know, he's listening deeply into the Dharma and feeling how it merges with his own intuitions and where it does and where it doesn't. But but the notion of, you know, and Surya and I have a, and I think Surya is kind of shifting and moving in this, you know, as he's talking to myself and to Zach Stein, but Surya has a kind of a kind of techno-optimist bent, I would say, Surya. And if you're listening, brother, right, you can correct me when we talk together, right? And so his notion of dataism is actually a citation from Yuval's book, Homo Deus, right, where Yuval has a chapter where he coins the term, it's really not his term, it's a term that exists in Silicon Valley that Yuval, that, that Yuval cited called dataism. So that's where that comes from, where basically reality is data, okay? So let me go slow with this for a second. Right. And that reality is data and that the human mind, right, is essentially a very sophisticated form, right, of data processing, but it's not in kind different than, let's say, an infinitely, well, not infinitely, but a highly, highly sophisticated AI da data processing. Right? That data is, right, the basic structure of reality itself. And dataism views data, right, as the basic structure of reality. And you actually hear it in culture a lot, Andrew, right? Is this, this is data-driven. This is a data-driven analysis, right? Yeah. Data is, right? But actually, that's fundamentally flawed reasoning. Yeah. Right? Um, can I just interrupt a little bit? Because please, I think please, his totally. thesis, his thesis is that dataism is a flawed religion. <laughs> oh no, he totally, no, he totally gets that that's flawed. No, he totally that it's a flawed notion. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No. We, no. No. Surya and I definitely agree that it's flawed, right? But Surya tends to a more techno-optimist view of AI, and and Zach and I recognize that you know the enormous potential of AI. But I think we see quite clearly it's very, very significant downfalls. And one of Soyo's key students who actually spoke uh, quite a bit at the seminar that you were at, we're talking about their vision of kind of building a kind of wise AI, right? Yeah, you know, yeah, they, yeah. right? They're, they're kind of naively not recognizing, right, the very real existential risks. But that conversation is one we'll have with you, me, and Soryu at a different time because I don't want to. I don't want to challenge his position without him being here, because that would be non-intimate and non-erotic. But maybe we'll stay just for a second to kind of capture the key flaw here. What's the key flaw? So Yuval has a sense, which he basically says, organism is algorithm. Organism is algorithm. Mm -hmm. That's the basic notion. Organism is algorithm. And that's precisely not true, right? In other words, there's a very, very excellent, very subtle article that pretty much no one's aware of, written by a, a, a new dear friend of mine in the last five years, who I would say is part of what we call our invisible college at the center. And his name is Perry Marshall. He's also a dear colleague of Dennis Noble and um, Stuart Kaufman. And he's done probably the most important work in, in cancer and evolution. And you know, Perry wrote an academic article which is basically why biology transcends computation, meaning an organism is not an algorithm, right? And that's very, very important. The human being right, has an algorithmic dimension, but the human being is infinitely more than an algorithm. The human being is a field of intimacy. And so that's like a very, very big deal. So data is a component of what we are, but we are not data. Data is a component of us, right? We are irreducible personhood. Right. Andrew Sweeney is personhood. And personhood, 
is a first principle and first value of cosmos. This quality of personhood, which is the infinite intimate, which is the name of God, right, that we use in cosmotic humanism, the infinite intimate being Andrew Sweeney, right, is not an algorithm, mm-hmm. right? That's, that's everything. Well, this is the thing, uh, uh, Mark. I've I've been listening to people like John Verveke as well, and and him talk about how we need to create. Uh, he calls it a cyborg rigor, like an egregore that's a cyborg, which has the qualities of wisdom and compassion, and which we can train to then go and begin to train us. So, so in a way, he's he, there. Seems to be an assumption that that the. the we would be creating a kind of a if not a person at least a god of some kind and so 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 i'm struggling with this notion yeah no and i think i think you know verbeke and i know of each other we have a whole bunch of mutual friends that have suggested that we talk we haven't quite gotten around to it yet but it will happen we're we're one step removed and in in conversation via other people but but he's dead wrong i mean let me just say it, it it's dead wrong and it's there there's there's an and and, and this is not a there's an insidious closet materialism, right, that appears in any number of thinkers today, right, which is extremely, extremely flawed at its core. A closet materialism means, right, an, an attempt to exponentialize quantitative measurable dimensions. And by having an infinite, a nearly infinite amount of quantitative measurable material, we actually somehow get to the immeasurable, right? Mm-hmm. But that doesn't work, right? The nature mm-hmm. of the immeasurable is that it's immeasurable. The nature of the priceless is that it's priceless. So when I have a moment with my, I spoke to my, I, I spoke to my son Zion today, Andrew, I have a little son Zion who's just, is just turning 13 and he's been in France and he was sick a little bit and it's a long story and Sally Kempton loved him. And like Sally loved him, right? She was, you know, and I, I would drive them around, right? The three of us would, would get together, you know, for years when, you know, and I would drive them around. I would sit in the front seat and they would, Sally at age 75, this very sophisticated Swami would drop in with seven-year-old Zion in the back seat, and they would drop into their world. And it was like, they ignored me. I didn't exist. I was like the driver. I was irrelevant. And, and I look back at those moments Right. And then I talked to Zion today. I told him that Sally died. And, you know, he had like this little tear and also this smile of like that she was good. And like that moment was so infinitely precious, so infinitely priceless that there's there's nothing that could possibly capture the depth of that moment. It's immeasurable. That's not capturable. That's who we are. That's Mm -hmm. who we are. There was a moment where I looked left, where I was sitting at the center of the table and you were on the, you moved a bunch of times, right? At the seminar, but there was a moment where you were sitting to my left, right? And it was after, right? And, and you spoke right after, um, you know, our beloved friend, um, Bonnie, who was very sweet afterwards and contacted us, right? right? And Bonnie had spoken and you spoke right afterwards. And I remember catching your eye and I saw just the purity in your eye in that moment and the goodness. And I just looked at Zach and smiled because he saw it also. And, and you probably forgot it already, but we didn't. And it was this priceless moment of just seeing Andrew's swinginess, right, at play. And it's priceless. So that's what's lost, right? And, 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 and my good friend, right, who, I, who we haven't met yet, Verveke, right, or Yuval, 
right? Or, or my friend Soryu, right, who, who wants to build this kind of AI, it can't be done, right? And we should build, right, AIs that generate, right, the best of quantitative measures. Of course we should. Mm-hmm. But those need to be mediated, right, through, right, the infinite trans-subjectivity, the infinite beauty of human personhood. And, and, and we, ha- we don't yet, we can't infuse AI itself with value. We can put values in AI that it can consider, but, but we haven't actually, the AI itself doesn't feel value. What it does is the way AI operates is it's not feeling, it's computing information. Now stay close with me for a second and I'll, and I'll, I'll, mm-hmm. I'll be quiet for one second, but just can you, you have like another minute of patience? I, I want to like hit something. What's it doing? You ask AI a question, okay? So what AI does is, right, it it checks all of the precedents, cross-references them, checks language patterns, right, in this very, very complex, so we don't even really know what's going on inside, but it's not feeling. And then based on precedent and all of the available precedents, it projects into the present moment and says, okay, this is the response. But here's the problem with that. The problem with that is that the present moment has its own infinite subjectivity, its own unique self. That's the nature of the present moment is that's irreducibly unique. That moment's never existed before. It has a new quality that never existed. That's the nature of time. Time is invested with this new sanctity. That's a holiday, it's a holy day. Every new time is a new quality of potentiality, which is why you can generate emergence in time, which means by definition, AI can't tell you how to respond in this moment of time. Because this moment of time never existed before. Lee Razi, does that make sense? Right? Right? I mean, it's beautiful, right? Right? Yeah. yeah. Andrew. And that, that, I guess that is a bit of a segue to the, the question of Eros. Uh, and uh, the fact that I noticed that there's a resistance, let's say, there was this kind of a resistance to speaking of Eros, to speaking of the erotic, because people are, are they're familiar with machine like thinking <laughs> and they don't want to go into those depths because they want to say safe and the ai seems like something that would be like safe or something or that would fix their problems or or I, no, beautiful. am i making sense here uh, You're making beautiful sense right in other words what we've done is we've done is we have valorized safety. So I, I'm that, that, the word safe is very important. We want to be safe, right? But, but actually, and we should be safe in all the ways. We should be safe, obviously, right? To take foolhardy risk is obviously inappropriate. But it's one of the things we saw in COVID. Our personal individual safety became the primary human value and the quality of lived life almost didn't matter. And safe means alive and as comfortable as you can be. Yeah. But here's the problem. Everyone's going to die. Right. In other words, right. And, and death is a night between two days, but it is a night, right? There's an end to this life. And I have to tell you, Andrew, right, as Sally passed, for the first time in my life, literally, I've never felt it before. I felt this desire to just step out. I was like, like the, 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 and I, I, I've buried students who were 18, who were killed in wars, right? I, I know death well. And yet, like losing my closest friend, the notion that she wasn't here, the, the world stopped making sense for a moment. 
Mm-hmm. And I had to go inside and find again, right? My will, right? And my, I had to recommit and refine my eros, right? So there's a, so, so one of the things that we do is we forget that we're all going to step out of the world. We're all going to step into a new dimension. What we try and do is we try and be safe and safe means, right? We're going to maintain our life for as long as we can, right? With as much comfort as we can, right? Which generally means material and psychological comfort. And we avoid anything that risks that comfort. That's a disaster, right? Because actually the nature of emergence of newness of, of depth always means I'm risking stepping into the new moment and letting that moment love me open. And and if that moment loves me open, it's going to be new. And by definition, it can't be fully safe. I've got to be willing to give up some safety to have the value of safety, not become an idol and have safety be in, in, in dance in dialectical tension with possibility, with emergence, with risk. And everyone has a unique risk they need to take. And your unique risk means there's a place you need to abandon safety for the sake of eros, for the sake of fullness, for the sake of ethos. Like, like that. That's the beginning of the conversation. Does that make sense, brother? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm just trying to understand some of my resistance against some of the conversations that are taking place in AI, because on the one hand, there seems to be a a, a apolo- apocalyptic feel like we're all going to die, you know, or it's going to fix everything, you know, <laughs> you know, or it's one of these two things. And it, there seems to be uh, this, this seems to be the narrative. And uh, I, I, yeah, please I'll just say one thing. And it's AI is a big conversation. It's yeah. A big conversation. But let's just say one thing about AI, and then we'll, we'll, we'll step into Eros and into Shabtai because they're deeply related. But yeah. Just so we can clarify the AI conversation. It's, it's very important to clarify. So there's, there, there's four levels of AI, very simply. The first and major risk of AI has nothing to do with AI getting agency and has nothing to do with AI becoming sentient, which are the p- things people talk about, right? Which are two different things. Agency means it has its own, right? It, it begins to act, right? In its algorithms to fulfill a purpose based on its algorithms, not based on sentience, but it begins to act with agency, not based on input, number one. And then, right, the second one, would AI become, get, become sentient? We, we, we move from urban sentience to silicon sentience. But those are the two, you know, kind of, you know, sci-fi, you know, and those are actually not impossible. The, 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 the last one from carbon to silicon is a much bigger conversation. Agency is also a big conversation, but that's what we call AGI, artificial general intelligence, that first has agency, right? And then later, right, has even sentience. That's not the issue. Let's place, take that off the table. Take that completely off the table. The issue with AI is, as an existential risk, is even if that never happened, the issue is that what AI does is it exponentiates the system as it already exists. And it's what AI allows to happen is, is artificial intelligence builds better nuclear weapons. Artificial intelligence makes bioweapons more yeah. accessible exponentially to rogue state actors who don't have access to them, right? right? Artificial intelligence basically allows 
for the entire race to the bottom, the tragedy of the commons, right? The win-lose metrics, the fragile system is exponentiated through AI in a way that basically it falls off the cliff. That's what AI does. And well, it takes, yeah, go ahead. No, brother. sorry. In, in, I mean, in uh, this is where I agreed with Storio that it's a, it's a, it's a religious and existential I- issue because if the people who are making these things don't know what the fuck they're doing, you know, or they're just making something powerful for the sake of itself, then we're in trouble, right? Yeah, no, this is what you're saying is so important, right? You know, in other words, and I don't want to mention who and where, because that's already, it's confidential at this point, it's inappropriate, it can undo very important movements happening, which are critical. But I would say in our inner collective circle, right, you know, at the center, right, key partners are involved literally now, I just, I was just leaving a box for someone right now, and there's a deep set of relationships with the key players, you know, on the inside of the AI community. And so let's say, you know, the people who are deciding the future of the world and the future of AI, and I want to get this really clear, the future of AI is the future of the world, right? Mm-hmm. And in terms of existential risk, the risks of AI, right, exponentially outweigh the risks of climate, right? They're not even close, yeah. right? Yeah. And so... So the people who are involved in this, and this is wild, Andrew, it's about 200 people. And this is, just, it's, un, it's unimaginable, about 200 people, right? Who are, right, virtually all, you know, white, or, or some of them are yellow, but you know, when it's white, yellow, right? A um, couple of Indian, right? Males, in particular age between, you know, 25 and 45, geeky, Super Gen- high IQ, yeah. But, super, but maybe super low, super low EQ, super EQ. low emotional EQ. quotient, right? Right. Complicated and you know unsatisfactory relationships with women, with the feminine, with sexuality, with their own bodies, right? No yeah. sense of what we mean by intrinsic value. Kind of very primitive, right? Primitive notions, right? Of how we actually understand value and evolving value and and, and eros and spirit. And even someone like, for example, even someone who doesn't fit into that category, a guy like Nick Bostrom. And Nick, if you're listening, blessings, brother, right? Blessings, but Nick, Nick is incredibly uneven. And that he can be startlingly brilliant when he writes about superintelligence in his book by that name and talks about the values uploading problem of AI. And then unbelievably primitive and uninformed and, and just kind of, alienated from the field of, of the intelligent field of value when he talks about things that are connected with spirit and the structure of value itself and eros. So the unevenness is amazing, right? And so I'm just giving you a couple of comments. So you get literally comments from this group of people, which we which are direct, which say things like, hey, you know, carbon-based life is not going to make it anyways. It's all data. Uh-huh. So the natural vector of evolution is that, you know, Silicon-based life is going to take over. What's the problem, right? I mean, it, it's actually. I mean, I mean, we're talking about the death of all future generations, and in a flippant comment, which is utterly alienated from the field of eros and the field of pathos and the field of intimacy. So you actually have people who are who basically, in their own lives, are disintermediated from intimacy. They're non-intimate with themselves. They're non-intimate with the field of reality. They're living paradoxically lives where Eros has been exiled into the computational fields. And so they're mm-hmm. actually 
unable, the people themselves, to access the field. And it's our fault because, because as the spiritual teaching community and the academic community, essentially, the spiritual teaching community got lost in its own, you know, win-lose metrics, you know, selling, you know, um, commodifying spirit, you know, doing kind of, you know, all sorts of repetitions of ancient traditions and not taking seriously technology and not taking seriously the metacrisis. The academic community deconstructed value and was very gleeful with itself in its deconstruction with no sense of responsibility for what would it mean to live in a world in which people experience themselves outside of the field of value, outside of the Tao. And, and so these people, the reason they have no conception right, of a robust story of value is because we haven't given them one, right? In other, in other words, neither the spiritual community nor the academic community has done that, which is why the overwhelming moral imperative of this moment is to articulate a new story of value that actually these communities can actually step into and actually experience. But they're not wrong. And the, the, the stories that they're rejecting of spirit and the stories that they're rejecting of religiosis are stories that should be rejected. I, I don't believe in the God that they don't believe in. But, but we, haven't, we haven't actually articulated a new story of value, which is why what we have to do day and night now, it's why you and I are talking. So... To What's tell the story of value? Yes, brother. A new story of value, but also based in the de deep traditions, right? Not just a new story of value. This is critical. This is critical. So yeah. this is one of the places that you and I meet, which is a new story of value, and this is the mistake that our friend Bonnie made. You know, at this, um, you know, at this conversation, and Bonnie's great, right? And no last names. Just I'm just remembering where, you know, you know and, and where Zach kind of took strong issue and I took strong issue, which was, she said, well, it's all in the young people, it's all emergent. L let all the old traditions go. It's all about the future and what's gonna emerge now. And, and I can't, I, I actually, there's nothing I could think that's more preposterous than that, right? In other words, as I'm a physicist, let's ignore the entire history of physics and let's just make up physics from the beginning without a lineage of physics. Why would you do that, right? What you do is actually you receive the best insight of the deepest peer community that's been validated through the methods of physics, then you stand on the shoulders of giants and you reject their mistakes and you reject their fallacies. And Boyle made a bunch of mistakes when he was in, you know, in Oxford and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And you develop, right? So what we need to do is we need to actually embrace the deepest validated insights of the unique lineage traditions liberated from their surface structures, which were ethnocentric and homophobic and, and anti-feminine and, and against universal human rights. I mean, all their flaws, that underneath those flaws, there are critical validated insights. We need, to, we need to gather them up together with the validated insights of modernity and its wisdom traditions, together with the important insights that my friend Jordan Peterson misses when he, when he destroys postmodernism. Postmodernism actually had important insights that are critical and, and a lot of huge mistakes. We've got to gather the best of the pre-modern classical lineage traditions, the best of the modern wisdom traditions, the best of postmodern insight, not just put them together, weave them together intimately into a new whole Okay, that, that's, 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 that's what our whole lives have to be about. And then we have to actually write, write the story, write a great library, write books, and also make rock operas and, and write songs and, and write poetry, right? We have to actually infuse the world with a new field of eros 
that every 10-year-old can understand. And yet at the same time, you can study, right, and write 16,000 doctorates on. If we don't do that, literally we will self-terminate. That's that's religion, though. I mean, that's what religion does well. It 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 even Christianity. It, it seems to it, it 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 can touch people on on all levels. Yes, no, that's right. the last simultaneously. Point. Yeah, that last point. Now, now I get what you mean by that. You're exactly right. Beautiful, gorgeous. With you, that's exactly right. The mark of a great religion is that is that you actually can understand it at whatever level you understand it. Right. And yeah. that's it's, and it, literally, as we're kind of trying to articulate this new story of value, this new world religion, this, this cosmorotic humanism as a universal grammar of value, we need to actually express it in a way that I can express it to my son at seven and at 10 and to your kids. And I can talk about it, you know, with to, to Howard Bloom and Howard can kind of engage it from NASA. And I can talk to it to my friend Art, who's coming tomorrow is the leading Hebrew wisdom kind of theologian in the world today, right? And to, I, I've got to express it at every level. And it's it's deep knowing discloses itself in every language at every level. And Andrew, here's the crazy thing. Here's the crazy thing. We can do it, right? In other words, we, we are in biblical times. And I don't mean that as a kind of an apocalyptic, right, sense. Right. Or as a kind of a kind of hebris. But in other words, we are in a time between worlds. We're in a time between stories and the evolutionary impulse that actually at the first moment of the Big Bang initiated all of reality is literally moving through you and me and through all of us on this call right now. And we actually have the capacity to with radical humility and radical audacity. We actually can. We're at this new moment in time. We can actually articulate a shared grammar of value, if we really do the work, we can actually do this. And that's, that's wild. You and said you don't mean to be apocalyptic, but doesn't apocalyptics means to reveal, you know, fundamentally, it means that to, is, is this clarification process, uh, right, on some level, which means bad shit is, is going to happen. Uh, um, and, and but then but then the the kernel or, or the what matters will will be revealed. Right, apocalypse, right, the right, right. So, so, but let's be apocalyptic in the deep sense of apocalypse. Yes, of course. Yeah. That's right. Not in the surface sense, right? Right. In the deep sense of apocalypse is we are at a moment in time that we have not ever been at before. And we just have to realize that. And here's the funny thing, if I can say it in a funny way, right? I'm looking for Ujis. Where's Ujis? I, I, I saw Ujis here. And I was looking also for right, a bunch of my friends. There he is. Okay. Hi, Ujis. I just wanted to find you there. Okay. Yay. So let me, let me say it this way. Every generation says that our generation is unlike any other generation and faces threats that no other generation faced, right? But, but they're generally wrong because pretty, right? But we're actually right, right? In other words, we're the first generation that's actually right about that, right? And that's, we've never been in a moment where we had the capacity to self-terminate. We've just never had that capacity. And, and our capacity to self-terminate is is only respondable to, right, by changing the very mood of reality, right? In other words, it's only by actually beginning to create a new field, a new story of value from which we generate everything that we can actually respond to that threat. That threat has, bows and arrows couldn't destroy the world, neither could B-52 bombers, 
right? In other words, in other words, it began at the nuclear moment in 1945. Now mm -hmm. we're way beyond the nuclear moment. We have exponentialized technology that develop weaponized drones available to non-state actors. And those non-state actors are not living in the field of value, right? And they experience themselves outside the field of value. I mean, that is, that's actually kind of shocking, right? To actually understand that. I mean, I mean, let me take a United States example. Every X amount of days in the United States for the last three years, there's been a school shooting. What does that mean a school shooting where a child takes a gun and shoots people in school? What does that even mean? I mean, what, what does that mean that a child picks up a gun and points it at other children and shoots? Well, it means we're in hell. I mean, it means nobody, we're in hell. nobody would behave that way if they weren't in hell. Right, right. <laughs> and what does it mean that we barely notice that that's happening? Right. In other words, that's what's even right. Right. We, we, we literally barely notice that we're in this world. Right. What that means is we've stepped out of the. It's not that horrors haven't happened. Attila the Hun did horrific things. Attila the Hun did barbarisms that were unimaginable. Right. That's true. And that was part of a kind of ethnocentric conquest. Right. And that's horror. Right. But Attila the Hun, for all of his horror, and his horror was great, couldn't destroy the world. He just couldn't. Didn't have the capacity. We now have that capacity. And the only way to actually shift that, right, to actually, to actually respond to that massive existential risk is to actually generate a new story of value that we all live in, a shared grammar of value, and we can fight about values, but we all know that we're in the field of value together. It's only, that's the single, that's the direct hit on the Death Star, that changes the game, right? Honestly, nothing else even vaguely comes close to the importance of that, right? If you look at kind of what is in the Derek Parfit question, what is, you know, the philosopher at Oxford who was the teacher of people like Nick Bostrom and, and like, you know, people like, uh, let's say Sam Harris in America and, you know, that whole gang, they're essentially re-articulating Derek Parfit, right? And so he's thinking about existential risk and he's thinking about, you know, how to, how to do the most effective altruism. You can do what's the most effective thing I can do. The most effective thing I can do today is actually right, generate a new story of value, which means, means we've got to get involved in, we have to fund it. We have to research it properly. We have to write it. As we said before, we've got to write the rock operas. We have to disseminate it, right? You have to write both, both, you know, both, you know, you know, with the commander, we need both writings and teachings and songs, right? And we need to be in this together, right? This, this is the moment in time. This is, this is day and night and everyone's got a place to play in this. And it's not, it's very specific. It's not, right? We've got to storm the barricades now. This is, this is a moment of revolution. We have to storm the barricades. This is, this is the moment in time to come together and step into this great work of articulating this new story of value, which is the only thing that from a human perspective can change history. It's only a new story, right? That changes the whole thing. So, wow. Mm -hmm. Wow, brother. So again, I'm, I'm a bit stuck on the, the new story trends coming when from I the old story. story I, by, by new story, I mean, let's define it. A new yeah. story of value means, brother, it means the best synergy of ancient, modern, and postmodern into a new story that's greater than the sum of its previous parts. 
but but I want to I but I want to I don't want to take the word new out because all these moves let's return to the ancient mm-hmm. right Rene Genot right guy I never pronounce his name right I'm G Genon Rene Genon yeah his the traditionalist yeah. right so Rene Genon who was kind of very important to the perennialists and when you read yeah. him right he's all about going back to the ancient right and Fritz of Schuon who's kind of a modern perennialist or mm-hmm. the perennialist you know starting from Ficino in the in the Florentine you know Platonic Academy they're all let's go back to the ancient truths that's not correct that's not going to work the ancient truths were pre-modern right and they were homophobic and they were against universal human rights and they they degraded the feminine right and they they I mean they, there were there were a thousand problems right and they they emerged at a moment that that consciousness hadn't yet emerged I mean, I went once, and this is just to give you a sense of it, Andrew, I went once, um, I won't mention the, the pe- particular people just to honor them, but I was invited to speak at a conference, you know, of Buddhist women. So I went and I said, so I'd like to just to cite the kind of things we have said about women in the world today, because we really need to deal with this as Buddhist women. So I cite these, you know, six, seven, unimaginably misogynistic, you know, terrible comments about women. They're like outraged. And I said, and the author of all of them is no less than the Buddha. And they were furious with me, right? If they could have shot me on the spot, they would have. Thank God no one was armed. And now that can't be true. And you must have missed. No, I wasn't misquoting. The Buddha said all of it. Yeah, yeah. My point was, is my friends, right? There's Buddha's realization, which was unique, his unique and beautiful awakening. But Buddha actually didn't know what we know today. The, the dignity of the feminine hadn't emerged in the same way. And they, they couldn't get it. And it couldn't be that he couldn't be he didn't know. No, he didn't. That's yeah. a big deal. So that, that's what I mean. Well, it is a new story. It's a new story that includes, that synergizes, that integrates, that weaves. Does that make sense, brother? Yeah, and well, and I think the new story in terms of Buddhism had to had to be the introduction of Tantra, because Tantra seems to me the only religion that actually be, before after paganism that actually has a powerful uh, understanding of the feminine. I might be wrong here, but but, but I mean I, that might be a, a broad, a very broad statement. But I mean, what you, you talk, you would talk about Hebrew, Hebrew tantra, and I guess what I mean by tantra is in, in the largest sense is that what you would call it shekinah or something, the feminine, you know, reuniting with the masculine has to do with something tantric. At least that's what I think is true in terms no, of my... your life statement. And uh, can, can we play with that, brother? Can we go? Please. Yeah. Then we're going to go. So let's go into Tantra for a second. Everybody up for a little Tantra? Let's let's do a little Tantra. So what what are the, and, and what Andrew's pointing to that we've talked about before, right? And Andrew, what you're pointing to, brother, that we've talked about before is this notion that there's not, there's not a religion called Tantra, right? Tantra is particularly in Hindu and Buddhist traditions, lineages, there's a, a, a sheen of Tantric literature and Tantric practitioners. Yeah. Now, 99% of tantric material, just it's worth stating, has nothing to do with sexuality, right? It's about worldview, right? And then about 1% is the implications for sexuality, number two. Number three, there are four or five major strains of tantra. Sally Kempton and myself spend 13, 14 years talking about tantra, right? Mm-hmm. Because of course it's deep in. And one of the things that Sally and I understood together was, was what I had shared with you, is that actually although it's not called Tantra, but there's a Tantric strain in most of the great lineage traditions, very deep 
in the Solomon tradition. And actually in 2005, I put out a, 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 an audio series called On the Erotic and the Holy, and, and it's called Kabbalistic Tantra, right? So there's this notion of Tantra. So what does Tantra mean? So let's see if we can hit it together. There's four, right? And if, if I would put this together, and this is kind of a lifetime of feeling this, there's four basic Tantric principles that, that work across traditions, yeah. right? So one, non-rejection principle of non-rejection and it's a very big deal nothing's off the table mm -hmm. right non-rejection that's what principle one so in every tantra tradition there's notion of non-rejection right whether it means we don't reject the darkness we don't reject the body right we don't reject wine right we don't reject revelry right in other words we don't reject shadow right and that's what our shadow is a modern psychological word but nothing's rejected there's something to be worked with so that's one. Two, the second principle is, I'm quoting, I'm quoting a Hebrew text, but this applies across the board. And the text says, the rigid is only sweetened at its root, which means you trace everything back to its root, right? And that's mm -hmm. the second one tantra you, you never stay at the surface you find what what is the root you trace the phenomena the experience right back to its root so if, I, if i'm in the, if i'm in desire i'm in the throes of sexual desire i trace the desire back to its root in the field of desire so it's not let's say the maggot says it's not that woman's breasts it's not the curve of that man's whatever right right posterior Right? No, I trace that man's posterior, those women's breasts, deeper than her, deeper than him, to the very root of El Shaddai, God who is breast, right? Right. And I actually find the root of that energy of breast in reality, right? And I'm actually embraced, right, by that dimension of the divine, right, would actually, at which I can actually suckle. And actually, Isaac the blind says, I know the divine derech by sucking and not by cognition, mm. right? That's, that's Tantra, right? Yes, very right? good. I trace it back to its root. That's the second principle of Tantra, mm -hmm. right? The third principle of Tantra, right? And this is where we're writing a book here just by itself. The third principle of Tantra is, right, right, is reality is a trickster. Is in all the traditions, reality is a trickster, right? And that's, it's not like it looks, my friend, right? It looks like that. It's really like that. Hanuman, right? Reality is a trickster, right? There, there's a trickster dimension to reality. There's a joker in the deck. It looks like that. It's really like that, right? Real, you know, opposites are joined at the hip. It's this paradoxical trickster reality that we live in. That's the third dimension of Tantra. And finally, the fourth dimension of Tantra is what I would call, and this applies, my friends, we, you know, this is huge, right? In other words, this is a, it, these are the four principles of Tantra that apply across all traditions. And the fourth principle is what we might call small letters and capital letters. What I mean by that is there's pleasure, small P and pleasure, capital P. So pleasure, small P is the opposite of pain. Pleasure, small p is pleasure. If there's pain, pleasures, right? Pleasures, right? Not there, right? But capital P is always it and its opposite. So, so reality is a trickster is three, but it and its opposite are included in the whole, right? The darkness includes the light, 
right? The, the wisdom includes the folly, right? The pleasure includes the pain, right? The, the, the rawness includes the tenderness, right? It's always fierce and tender, right? That those two can't be split, right? The ecstasy includes the agony. The capital E ecstasy includes agony. The small E ecstasy, right, splits off agony. So that, that, that notion of the capital letter includes it and its opposite. And, and the simplest ex, you know, ex, explication of that is if you look at Solomon, his book of Ecclesiastes in chapter two, verse seven, the verse says, greater is wisdom than folly, greater is light than darkness. So that's a, a duality text. The Zohar, 13th century, the Book of Radiance says in, in chapter and page, volume three, if you want to look it up, it's, it's volume three, page 47a. It says, right, it says, greater is wisdom that comes from folly, greater is light that comes from darkness. Mm. Right? That's not true. So those, yeah. that's, 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 so now we've got this on the table. We can mark. Yeah. Can I can I just add something to that? Because that Please, is fantastic. God, I absolutely love all of that uh, completely uh, and 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 would say an emphatic yes. But we still haven't got to the feminine and why the feminine is important uh, in Tantra and why, for example, in, in, in you know, in the Tantric tradition of uh, the Nigma tradition, Yeshe Shogel is, is a fantastically wild sexual being and she's a woman and she carries a butcher's knife and she has a a bowl of nectar and no they don't way. have that in christianity or islam or they don't they or they did but they hide it and they you right. know so th all of this is 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 denied in in most of the okay. you know the the uh, the abrahamic religions and most all religion and buddhism too everywhere so I mean, so that's what i wanted to 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 ask you about no no let's find the first i just want to mention that i went out with her a couple of times right? <laughs> yeah me too yeah right she, was, I, she know, destroyed my life in fact i went out with yes yeah a couple of times right so so there's that okay so so we'll, we'll we'll skip that part of the conversation right but but so let's go deep into this okay so people identify right, the tantric tradition with this feminine notion, but I think it's a little bit of a mistake tenderly. In other words, this notion of the, the full embrace of the full breath of the masculine and feminine is not one of the four tantric principles, it's an expression of them, right? In other words, and it's the core principle is non-rejection, trace it back to its roots, right? Right, reality is a trickster, right? And, you know, the, the union of opposites. Now, what that means is, is, I mean, let's now apply it. Well, hold on, hold on, Mark, because I'm, I'm not saying that I think Tantra is defined by the feminine. No, I'm I understand. Saying, I'm saying that it includes the feminine in a way that other, totally. other traditions don't. Totally. Uh, it's, it's absolutely masculine as well. But, uh, it, totally. the, the, the Vajra is a phallic symbol. Right. <laughs> right. So what, what Tantra does is it says, well, let's say it this way, it says, you're wild. Let's play it in the realm of sexuality now, even though 1% of Tantra, let's play the realm of sexuality. It means your wildest sexual expression, if you trace it back to its root, is the sacred itself. And that actually the righteous woman is not necessarily the woman, right, with the, with the shawl or who's demure or who's drawing water from the well, you know, <laughs> right, for Isaac, but actually she's this wild woman 
right? Who is, you know, who's scantily clad and all the icons of, of, of Kashmir Shaivism, right? Who's wielding these skulls and these swords that are dripping blood, right? And she's, she is the full and wild expression, right? Of the feminine. And she may be called Lilith and, you know, and maybe demonized or, and she may be called, right? She's got many names, Right. And Sally did, Sally Kempton did an enormous amount of work in her teaching around the particular incarnations, right, of these incarnations, these tantric incarnations of the goddess. And by the way, I'd recommend her book, Awakening Shakti, which is about these archetypes of the tantric feminine. So it's a fabulous book. And I was, you know, with her, you know, as she was writing it, it's, it's a fantastic, beautiful book. But, but, but in other words, so what Tantra does is Tantra says, the, and, but here's the thing. It also embraces the full range of masculine desire. And see, that, that's what's so important. What we do is we demonize masculine desire and we split off feminine desire. Those are the two moves we make. We demonize the masculine form of desire and we split off the feminine. You know, um, you know um, I can just give you a funny example, a, a politically incorrect example, which I'll deny having said, which I guess you shouldn't say things online, which you're about to deny, but that's a problem. But in any case, um, Laura Kipnis, Right, who's a professor at Northwestern who wrote an excellent book called The Female Thing, who's a brilliant, what I would call power feminist. You know, she was interviewed in 2018 in Me Too, and she said something, you know, in this round table, you know, at the New York Times where everyone decried her. And she said, in the whole Me Too story, wasn't there any woman who wanted to have sex? Right. And that was her point. Like, was there anyone in any office, any place? who had any desire that wanted to have sex or was this all rapacious bad men, right? And again, yeah. me, too, me Too was calling out something important, right? Which is, you know, a small percentage of the masculine, right? That actually violates boundaries and engages in what we should have zero tolerance for, zero tolerance, let me make clear, zero tolerance for any form of sexual harassment whatsoever. So that's a given in the space. It's not, it's not, we're not being in any way compromising We're zero tolerance, but isn't there any feminine desire that's part of this play here? That was Laura Kipnis's point, right? And by the way, I wouldn't dare say it out loud without saying Laura Kipnis, right? In other words, right? In other words, but she's absolutely right. In other words, there's this, this splitting off of feminine desire. And then Stephen March, M-A-R-C-H-E, you can look it up in his widely cited New York Times, you know, column, you know, op-ed during COVID talks about the inherently brutal nature of masculine desire. So with all due respect, fuck you, man. Right? Yeah. Like, really? In other words, there's enormous beauty to masculine desire. Right? And so in other words, what Tantra says is, yes, there's shadows to the feminine. And yes, there's shadows to the masculine. But basically, the full range of masculine and feminine desire right, have to be on the table as radical expressions of the divine. Whoa, right? And you know, in, in certain communities, so for example, the S and the M community, right, intuits some tantric principle. It has excesses, it has shadows, but there's a core intuition of the community is there's more available here than there is in the vanilla world. And that actually we need to sacralize it. Now, again, lots of excesses, right? Lots of, you know, and, and I personally, by the way, have no tolerance for pain, right, of that nature. So <laughs> never I've never actually practiced. Right in the kind of the, the real kind of world of S and M, which is real pain. Like I'm like I don't think I'm doing that. No, right. So I just have to say I have no no experience. But in the general intuition, is no 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 no. And it's in Foucault, right, who goes to the leather bars of San Francisco, 
right? And talks about, right, the profound knowing and ecstasy that emerges, right, from, from his experience of the sexual. They're pointing, they're sacralizing that, that it's a tantric movement. And we need to bring that back because when we yeah. split it off, right, it actually generates shame. Yeah. Shame that actually destroys the very fabric of who we are. And I'm looking at the left and the right and and the transgender movement and, and all of these things uh, and, and seeing that on the conservative end, there, there there's this sort of moral fury going on somehow. And in, uh, in, uh, in, uh, in the left and the other side, there's 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 a kind of uh, an, yeah, there's, it's moral fury on both sides, actually. But one is one is for total permissiveness is and one is that we have to narrow down experience to these archetypes of, of man, man, male and female. And both of those are, are wrong. Um, and that's, again, why I think the tantric is, is the sort of it's a solution because it sacralizes the the. Uh, the the, um, the the desires and brings arrows back in. That's beautiful. No, no, Andrew, that's beautiful. Let's let can, let can we play with that for a second, brother? So of course, so I think tantric is the response. But let's see if we can characterize together, right, the left and the right, because actually both of them are engaged in forms of puritanism. In other words, in other words, actually, the right wing has the classical puritanism, right? It's a violation of of, of divine mandate, right, to actually engage in there's, you know, in any kind of sexuality other than classical marriage sexuality, you know, in the missionary position, right? You know, in other words, there's a kind of, right, there's a kind of classical sexuality. And, you know, I remember when, um, you know, any other possibility outside of that is somehow demonized. I remember when a major conservative leader in the United States, Newt Gingrich, what was accused of having an affair, that was not a problem. Affairs is not a problem. That's a classical thing that men do. But when he was accused of entertaining the possibility of a partially kind of open marriage, he had to come out with this huge statement, you know, denying it. And that's not true. And it's a complete lie. And he was, you know, and that's because he knew that having an, a series of affairs would have no effect on his political career. But entertaining, right, a new model of sexuality would destroy him. Right. So that's it. And it, it's a big deal. So that's that's the kind of puritanism on the right, but actually, right, there's an in intense puritanism also on the left. In other words, the left today has actually developed this new puritanism in which, you know, the issue is not sexual or, and sexual harassment is not harassment, but the sexual. And Vicki Schultz, who's a professor at Yale, wrote an important article maybe 15 years ago, and she's continued to write on it where she says that sexual harassment law started as sexuality can be a form of harassment. The issue is harassment. Mm -hmm. But if you follow the legal history of sexual harassment, what actually the issue became not harassment, but the sexual. And it's, if sex has been had, then there must be moral turpitude. And so, I mean, often people will call me and they say, wow, and, and, and they had sex. And I'll say, oh, okay. And Right. So and the assumption, the conversation is that if sex was had, it's inherently problematic. In other words, we don't have a narrative of desire. Right. We only have a narrative of desire, which is sex negative, the old narrative, sex neutral, Kinsey. Right. Sex sacred. Sex is sacred when you're having sex to have babies or kind of bland sex positivity. And none of those sexual narratives work. 
So we have our most powerful human experience, sexuality, is devoid of a story that's equal to its power. And the result is that in the liberal world, particularly, we have a new sexual puritanism, which is run amok, right? And like the old puritanisms of the right, which used sexuality to wage all manner of political crusades and all manner of assassinations, right? The left now, hiding behind sexual puritanism, right, commits every sin of, you know, indecency and base, you know, turpitude, right, using sexuality as a cover for power grabs. So, so sexual puritanism is actually rampant on the left, and actually the woke community is defined by a kind of sexual puritanism. And so that, that's a big, big deal to recognize, right? I mean, it's a big deal to kind of, so we actually have now puritanism all around, and we desperately need to generate a new narrative of desire, right? a new tantric understanding. And, and just, by the way, and then I turn the baton back to you, together with, um, you know, with Dr. Kincaid, um, with Aubrey Marcus, and with, you know, on the, tub, the subject of gender with Claire Molinaire, you know, you know, you know, we've actually written an entire phenomenology of Eros, which is this new tantric possibility. So we spend, you know, one vector in the think tank has been to do this phenomenology of Eros that we're going to hopefully put into the world in the next X amount of months, which is exactly about this, because without that, we're actually drenched in shame. So I, I love pointing to that. And it's critical. We, we can't deal with existential risk without a new narrative of desire. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And uh, and and then there's there's the eros and then the pseudo eros, right? Um, and I guess the pseudo eros is all the things that we act out when we're not in connection to that, and that's like the history of the world, you know. That's <laughs> you know that's a big thing, isn't it? It's a big thing, right? Right. So let let's you know that's a big thing, brother. I mean, let's maybe define the terms for for a second. <laughs> Right. By eros, we mean, right? By eros, we mean, we, we mean, we mean the, the fullness of the erotic current of reality. Er, let me just say, let's go back a step. I, I apologize because I, it, it, sometimes we, we use terms and we get lost in our own field of language that we're trying to lay down, but we need to revivify the field so that it actually has meaning. So let's just maybe two steps with permission tenderly. So by eros, we mean, the experience of radical aliveness that's moving through me, that's desiring that experience that, that moves in me, that moves through all of reality, you know, from matter all the way up through self-reflective mind, right? Matter desires to be music, right? In other words, reality is desire all the way up and all the way down. So the experience, and, and it has an experience of radical aliveness. So the experience of radical aliveness desiring ever deeper contact and ever greater wholeness, right? That's the experience of Eros. So when I'm in the field of Eros and I feel my own radical aliveness and I feel the fullness of my desire and I'm moving towards deeper contact and greater wholeness, right? I'm in my life and, and I've got to do that uniquely, right? There's a unique Sweeney expression of that, which is different than the Gothi expression of that. So I've got to be in my unique Eros. Now, when I'm not in my unique Eros, right, when there's a void, right, then I can't tolerate the emptiness. The emptiness is devastating to me. I, I can't sit in the hole. I don't know how to sit in it. So I move to cover the hole up. That's pseudo eros. 
And I covered up with any, every manner of acting out, every manner of addiction, every manner of zealotry, whether it's woke zealotry or right-wing zealotry, right? But, but I cover up the hole because I don't know how to sit in it and let the actual eros of reality moving uniquely through me rise. So that's eros and pseudo-eros. And, and essentially, Existential risk is the direct result of exponentialized pseudo-eros, right? In other words, the win-lose metrics is when I'm not in my story of eros, I'm not in the story of my unique self, I'm not in the story of my unique gift, I'm not in my unique quality of intimacy, I'm not in my unique quality of desire, right? Then only then I'm I, I'm overrun by pseudo-desires and pseudo-eros which is every form of rivalrous conflict governed by win-lose metrics, which drive my reality. And pseudo-eros exponentialized becomes existential risk, right? So if I can't access my actual quality of desire, and let me say it in a different way. We talked about it last time, then back to you, brother. But let's say it in a different way. Let's take it back because the sexual always models eros. It doesn't exhaust eros. So let's go back to sexuality for a second. What is pornography? The pornographic universe, which is infinitely boring, right? But the pornographic universe is basically when I can't access my own script of desire. And my own script of desire is my unique script of desire, right? And Andrew Sweeney has his own unique script of desire, which I'm sure he's going to talk about today for about a half hour. So we'll be getting to that soon, everybody, right? But in other words, right? But, but it's, we all have our own unique script of desire. Now, what happens is it takes something very deep to access my own script of desire. That's actually, that's a deep dive to actually, now, the only thing that's more powerful in the pornographic universe is my unique script of desire, right? So, and my unique script of desire comes from the depth of my story, the depth of my uniqueness and the depth of my trauma. It, it's all of my holy and broken hallelujahs, right? Right. And, and by the way, one of the people who kind of, you know, you know, you know, you, you kind of get that. You kind of get that. You get the difference between my script of desire and the kind of surface script of desire. The person who was kind of looking for that was Leonard Cohen. Leonard, both in his poetry and in his songs, is always looking to get beneath, right? You know, kind of the, right? And to find what's my script of desire. But that's very hard to find. So, right, the pornographic is when actually the algorithm, right? Right. So it used to be kind of general popularity. What sold most tickets? You know, when I was growing up, right, in Bexley, Ohio, though I remember exactly where the pornographic theater was, and we would ride our bikes and we would try and kind of like subtly glance over at the picture, right? And the poster in the front. That's as close as we got to pornography. It was the poster, right, in the white <laughs> movie theater in Bexley, Ohio. We would drive our bikes by and we'd all pretend not to look. And you try and glance over. Right at the semi-clad person on thing. That was that was basically what pornography meant, right? We're obviously in a different world, right? In other words, any form of sexual act in any manner is available three clicks, right? High-speed internet porn from age 11, destroying children's minds, right, in their entire field of eros, right? It's a different world. But that world that we live in, this pornographic universe, right, is actually mediated by algorithms. It's mediated by algorithms. So if someone looks at pornography and they they oh I that that one was good right oh, I like that one with the with the with the guy you know with the long hair or the girl with the pigtails 
right? So then you start getting, okay, 18 year olds with pigtails, guys with a certain kind of hair, right? And you start getting, and by the way, I'm saying guys and girls because women and men access pornography and there's the, the, the numbers between 18 and 24 are largely even in many markets in the world, by the way, right? The numbers are shifting dramatically. The old image of these, these old bad men accessing pornography is bullshit. And there's a huge feminine pornographic consumption. And again, between ages 20 and 18 and 24 in many markets, it's the same. And we know this because Pornhub releases its analytics, right? Every year there's Pornhub analytics, right? Which actually, they actually track very closely different markets, who's watching, what time of day, masculine and feminine. There's, we have, we have an enormous amount of information on this. This is not hypothesis. So, so I'm, that's why I'm saying, I want to take this out of the kind of the men watching pornography of the pornographic universe right, is actually algorithmically mediated in which the algorithm appeals not to your unique script of desire, which is your eros, right, but to your pseudo eros, which is your lazy script of desire, right, right, it's the one that's not your unique self, it's just the easy surface attraction, which is fine, but infinitely boring after a very short amount of time, and so therefore you've got you've to look for another version of it. Right. Oh, let me try that with two women and a man. Oh, let me try that with right. In other words, let me try cuckolds. Right, which is a right. In other words, and you got to keep what you do in pornography is you keep upping the level of boundary violation. Right, right. In other words, first, you know, it's you know, I've had an affair. Then I've broken into your house. Then I've tied you up after breaking into your house. Then I've tied your husband up in front of you after breaking into your house. Right. In other words, and that's but that's actually how pornography works. We keep yeah. upping the dopamine hit. Because we're not actually acting in the unique script of desire. So unique script of desire is eros, right? Right, right. The algorithmically generated pseudo script of desire is pseudo eros, but that applies not only in sexuality, it applies across the field of desire, across the field of eros. In other words, unique self is eros, right? Lowest common denominator, separate self, win-lose metrics is basically pseudo eros exponentiated. So that's a critically important distinction without which we can't move. So like, so deep power. Okay, Got it. Was- and you, you, you mentioned Leonard Cohen and that always piques my interest because I love Leonard Cohen. Um, and he had an album called Various Positions. And it, it seemed that he was always making uh, a reference to biblical stuff and to sexuality in its right. most, you know, you know, as you say, holy and broken, but just, just, you know, so, so there's, so what he did was, was kind of join the two worlds, I think, which yeah, is very no, he, rare because often, you know, religious music is very pure and, and, and doesn't include the garbage and, and you know, uh, side of our, our psyche. Uh, and, and it's not, I mean, if someone can pull up, no, you're, you're completely right. If someone can pull up and throw in the chat box, if anyone can, the, the lyrics to Leonard Cohen's I'm Your Man, okay? The lyrics to Leonard, everyone can pull that up, anyone. Leonard Cohen's I'm Your Man is an incredible song. But while that's being pulled up, let me just respond to, to you, Brother Andrew. So if you look, for example, at the beginning of Hallelujah, right? You know, David had a secret chord that pleased the Lord, right? And But, but the, the story of Hallelujah is the story of David and Bathsheba. Right, that's the story, right? It's the book of David, right? Who sees her bathing on the roof, right? She, you know, she broke your throne. She cut your hair, right? She cut your hair. She broke your throne, right? In other words, is Bathsheba 
right? And he mixes it with Solomon and, and with Samson and Delilah. He mixes the Samson and Delilah story with the David and Bathsheba story. But it's about this, this, this erotic feminine who's gorgeous and beautiful. And David doesn't quite know how to contend with. And, and he mixes kind of the mad passion he was and he was known. Right? Cohen was known for being kind of, you know, madly in love with the feminine. Right. And and as he said, you know, he said I was a major ladies man, which you were allowed to say 30 years ago. Right. You know, yeah. you're not allowed to say that today without being kind of killed. But, he, you know, he would spend basically, you know, 17 days on tour. Right. Lost in acid. Right. Performing brilliantly and, you know, essentially sleeping with anything that moved. Right. You know, in his sight with mad passion. That was Leonard Cohen. Right. And he was not politically correct to major an understatement, but he was he was honoring. Right. In other words, he was respectful. Right. And, 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 and I'm sure people got hurt along the way. And right? it was a, it was a complex story. But but he was he was holding something. So when you look at I'm your man, let's see if I don't know if it made it into the chat box or didn't. We'll see. We'll find out here. I'll take a look. Chat box. I'm your man. There we go. No, let me see if I can find it. Hold on, let me get it open again. Where lyrics. I'm your man. That's the we, chorus there. I don't see the full one. Here. No, here it is. No, it's a look a little up. Ah, the moon's too bright, the chair's too tight, the beast won't go to sleep. I've been running through these promises to you that I made and could not. Right? Ah, but a man never got a woman back, not by begging on his knees. Or I'd crawl to you, baby, and I'd fall at your feet. And I'd howl at your beauty like a dog in heat. And I'd claw at your heart and I'd tear at your sheep. I'd say, please, I'm your man. If you got to sleep for a moment on the road, I will steer for you. If you want to walk the street alone, I'll disappear for you. If you want a father for your child, or if you only want to walk with me a while across the sand, I'm your man. If you want a man, right? And this is where it starts. I'll, if, you want a, if you want a lover, I'll do anything you ask me. And if you want another kind of love, I'll wear a mask for you, right? And it goes on and on, right? It's, you know, it's, I mean, it's gorgeous, right? It's gorgeous and, and it's erotic. Uh, would you say it's pornographic? Right, um, I would say, I would say that it is, it is, I mean, no. Right, because no, it's erotic, right? Erotic, right. In other words, and what he's saying is, right, he was saying is, you know, I want to meet you, I want to find you, right, right. I want to, right. Now it's it's very easy to be triggered by Cohen, right, and to reduce him, right, to some sort of political incorrectness, but that's not who he's about. I mean, I watched him sing "I'm Your Man" to sell out crowds on his last tour all over the world, where you have this seventy-five-year-old man in this three-piece suit with his hat on, this pinstripe suit. And I'm just looking up online, singing, I'm your man. He can barely sing. Oh yeah, right? on his knees as well. He spent most knees. of the concert I saw on his knees. <laughs> yeah. singing, I'm your man in radical devotion to the feminine. And he wasn't singing this, he wasn't singing this from any abusive place. He was singing it in like, I'm your man. How can I meet you? How can I serve you? Use me any way you want. I'm in service to you. That's a dimension. And it wasn't only in a monogamous context, right? It wasn't, right? It wasn't, he was saying, no, no, this is how I'm meeting the feminine. And, and I'm going to say something again, slightly politically incorrect, but we've lost, again, we've split off feminine desire. When we have a sexual encounter between a man and a woman, the assumption is the man got something and the woman gave something up. That's literally the assumption in the space, but that's ridiculous. Why, why would you think that? Both the man and the woman exchanged in the field of desire, right? The assumption is the man's getting something and the woman's giving something up. 
which is a tragedy, right? Right? No, there's this giving and receiving between two sacred holy beings right, that needs to be filled with mutuality and filled with honor and filled with respect, but not necessarily Roman candles and incense, right? Because mutuality and respect Right, can express themselves through an open heart and deep dignity, but right, in, in all forms of sexing. And that's what that's what Andrew Cohen was talking about. He was talking about the erotic. The pornographic is the sensation divorced from the depth of feeling, divorced from the depth of respect, divorced from the depth of the field of eros. You said Andrew Cohen, by the way. I know, I know. I meant I meant Leonard Cohen. Yeah, no, Andrew, Andrew doesn't yeah. speak about sexuality, a different conversation. Right, well, it's a right. mixture between me and, and, and Leonard. So that's right. Just, Andrew, Andrew Sweeney and Leonard Cohen. Cohen. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Brother, okay. Yay. Thank, thank you. Right. So anyway. do you want to get to Shop Tight Sweet for a few minutes? Well, uh, yeah. I was trying to find, I've been trying to find this, the segue where, to the ancient <laughs> wisdom uh, as we speak about, you know, modern sexuality and, and, uh, and that. And, and I guess uh, what, I, what I'm learning about or, you know, in in uh, Jewish history is is sort of this tension between the law and let's say the breakers of the law, and then or the Messianic tradition, the the and the um, and then the more conservative, you know, mystical tradition and the the tension between the two and 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 so that I find that very interesting and I find this 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 figure who who is sort of the second Messiah or could have been the next Messiah if he hadn't converted to Islam very interesting as well and and so so anyway um and claire told me that you have some interest in right how do right. i say his well, name again i'm really sorry shop i can't tight, get his shop tight c shop tight c okay thank you so, so um i don't know um if kk is listening i don't think she is i think she's with james someplace but i, I so i don't see near me the book return to eros but if you open up a return to eros the book right which is a, a book that we wrote in 2016 and Zach Stein wrote a review essay of it called The Metaphysics of a Return to Eros, which is also an excellent essay. Oh, okay, so Claire has it. So open up if you can, Claire. That's so much. Thank you so much. The dedication page. So if you see the dedication page to Return to Eros, and maybe Claire will read it to us, right? If she can, well, if she can, um, she can find it at the dedication, the very beginning, right? And the dedication page is to who? A little drum roll here. Right, but Claire's still muted. Okay, Kay's bringing it. So Karen, uh, there we go. So here we go. Oh, there she is. Okay, okay. So we'll do it together. Thank you, KK. Thank you. There's so the dedication page. Is right. right? It's this page, right? So it says to Shabtai and Sarah. Right. Mm -hmm. So return to Eros is actually dedicated, right, to Shabtai and Sarah. So Sarah was this courtesan, right, who hears of Shabtai. And they come together, and she actually had enormous influence on who he was and his teaching. And Shabtai and Sarah are enormously precious, right? To me, to we, right? In other words, we're, right? Shabtai and Sarah are enormously precious. So this is a, you know, we're now, I think, we usually go about 90 minutes. So I think we're at the end of our time. So maybe we can, this is such a big deal, and it's so precious and it's so important that my tender suggestion is maybe we spend, maybe next time, right, our next dialogue, you know, we actually do on Shabtai, right? Very exactly. good, yeah. Such a and big- I'll have maybe finished the book by then, so I'll have more right. now you're reading knowledge in it. Gershon Shalom's Mystical Messiah? Yeah. Yeah, so that's a very important book on Shabtai. Um, 
there's so much to say about this, but but let me just say for now. Mm, let's not say for now. Let's let let's let's hold it here, right? But Shabtai is 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 misunderstood, complex beyond imagination, beautiful beyond imagination, was damaging, right? You know, in many ways, and was beautiful in many ways. His prophet Nathan, Nathan of Aza, right, mm -hmm. is is a critical figure, and his key teaching, right, are extremely extremely important, right? He was one of the first people to call women to read the Torah in public, right? He had a deep sense of the, the innate inherent sacredness of the field of desire itself, right? He was both erotic in the most sacred ways and transgressive, right? In, in, in quite, quite real and serious ways. But at the core of Shabtai is an incredibly important teaching. And it's not by accident that Gershom Shalom Right, who is the, the Don, if you will, of scholarship of Kabbalah, right, was, I wouldn't say not just not just fascinated, was obsessed by Shabtai. And the tome, if you can hold that up, right, Andrew. The yeah, tome, it's a big fat book. I wasn't expecting it to be, it's like a thousand pages, right? right that's the tome. Yeah. That's that's one tome. And in, in wake of Gershom Sholem, who is the kind of you know, the 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 godfather of modern Kabbalah scholarship. His closest friend, I don't know if anyone's familiar, is Walter Benjamin, mm. who committed suicide trying to leave Europe, you know, from, from France and an incredibly important figure. And Benjamin and Shalom were enormously close. So Shalom is, is, is he's, he's, he writes about Shabtai because he's looking, and he never says this out loud, and Kabbalah scholarship would completely deny that this is in any way true. But actually, there's, there's this deep need, which Kabbalah scholarship failed in right, to articulate a new narrative of desire. And I'll say maybe two more sentences and then we'll, we'll pick it up next time. I sat with them um, or briefly spoke to Moshe Idel, right, um, who's the kind of, there's two, there's two or three major, four, maybe four very, very serious scholars in the generation after Shalom. One of them is Moshe Idel, another is Yehuda Libas. Um, you know, and Moshe, I don't know him well, but he was my thesis advisor at Oxford. Um, but we had several significant meetings, obviously, as my thesis advisor. But even before that, we, we met in um, the library in Oxford. And I shared with him this, this very deep vision of Eros as it emerges from the lineage, as it relates both to Shabtai and to the entire field of Hebrew wisdom. And I then published that as a book called The Mystery of Love, which was originally called on the erotic and the holy, which has 30, 40 pages of primary source footnotes on Eros and Kabbalah. Idel then told me that he's working on a set that he agreed with my general direction. When I published that book, Elliot Wolfson, who's probably the key formal scholar of Kabbalah in America, called me. We didn't know each other. He said, who are you? And he wrote a blurb on the book. And then Idel says, I'm going to publish on that. And then he published three years later after I did a book called Kabbalah and Eros. Right, so which all goes back to this is everyone's kind of so the the, the Shabtai notion Shabtai is actually expressing a very deep hidden strain in Hebrew wisdom, right? That needs to be talked about in great depth, and which is a very important source of cosmorotic humanism. Let me just leave it at that. And so Shabtai is enormously important, but not on a blind embrace, but in a discerning embrace. And so 
let me just hold it there. But I, I feel deeply connected to Shabtai. I, I sometimes feel almost like an, an a reincarnation of Shabtai. Right. Yeah, I was kind of wondering that actually. Like that, it seems like your path and his have some similarities. Or, yeah, right. yeah. Deep, deep. So that's a much bigger conversation. Uh, and, and Andrew, what a, a mad, just a mad delight to be with you. And so our next conversation, maybe in, I think in September. I think we're going to skip August because we're we're going to all be away. But uh, you know, our next one is in the beginning of September, and 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 just just if I can to bow to you. Right, the depth of of these conversations is, is really because of the space in between, and it comes from I think all of your years of study and all of your practice and and us coming together in that space between the cherubs. So it's always just a, a mad delight to talk to you and, and to honor you. So thank you, brother. Yeah, same here, uh, Mark. Thanks. Thanks so much. Yay! Mm-hmm. Yay! Cha. Claire, I think we're not. It just seems like are we are we closing? I think we're not doing questions. Hands. I don't. I don't know. I don't know what our you're holding our. We did have a question, but first, first of all, thank you so much, you both. That was an amazing ride. It was. It was quite something. Uh, I just love how these conversations between you two just take us in so many places. So yes, we did have a one question from Anis. We didn't get any other questions, did we, Andrew? Uh, not sure. I haven't been following so much. Though. We have. We haven't. We have. I apologize. The plane of arrows, and I'll send it to you, Mark. Um, yeah. I don't know if so we cool. still have time for that. Um, let's, right. let's do. A, let's do a last question. I, I just want to apologize to everyone. We actually weren't careful here. We, you know, both Andrew and I and Claire. We should have set up and finished fifteen minutes early right, to take questions, and we didn't. Mm. We got caught up. So just apologies to everyone. It's completely Andrew's fault. No, I'm just, I'm just teasing. No, it is. I'm, I'm, no, I'm, my fault. My I, fault. I'm completely lost in the conversation. I, we, we I, got, I have no idea what time it is or, you know, even I got, I, I got, I also, I got, we got, right. So that's a, we got, but we will next time. And, and Claire's holding our vessel, but I just also just got completely lost and lost track of time. But next time we will pay attention more and create a real space for questions and answers. So deep, deep, deep apologies, right? And, you know, and as Robin says, when we get lost in the conversations where we find each other, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yay, 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 yay. So let's take that last, that, that we'll maybe we'll do one question just as symbolically and Claire, give it to us and maybe we'll each get to and close with that. So we're closing with, with this question. Maybe, maybe Anis, can you, can you ask your question again and maybe briefly, please? Anis, how you doing, brother? Sure, I'm great, I'm great. It's good to see you, Mark. See you, Mark. Um, Still yeah. jealous. Still Sorry? jealous. Still jealous of the hair. <laughs> I haven't gotten over it. Thank you. Um, okay, so my question is about the, the pain of errors in, in a certain way. Um, like we all experience like the joy of love, and 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 I'm all for that. Like the love of errors, a lot of the energy of love. Um, and at the beginning, it's this nice and warm thing, and, and um, like you know, very very light. Um, but then I feel like deep relationships always lead to a point where we end up triggering the other person, being triggered by the other person, and 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 we just get to this kind of very, I don't know how to say, but like very dark places, like following arrows. Um, almost sometimes it feels like being like a moth to a flame, you know, where, where you yeah. follow nice light and then you get burned by 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 this. Uh, dark side of arrows um so yeah I, I want to say like ask what's up with that how do you interpret that where does that fit 
Beautiful, beautiful. Andrew, do you want to comment on that, brother? Um, it could be no. Right? <laughs> I, I think I want. Well, you know, I, 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 it's, it's, it's a mystery. It's a koan. It's, it's a, it, it's a, it's, it's a. I was reading something the other day that that it's like the wounded, the broken heart, is 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 you know is is reliable. It's a path. There's something something I read about that, and that's what what you said brought up right. for me. And yeah, beautiful. Cha. Yeah. And this is a big. This is a big, big, beautiful topic, and I and it it's maybe it's its own dialogue, which is I mean we have to do a dialogue on Shabtai. We have to do a dialogue on the Queen of Eros. And so um, together with my friend that I was uh, deeply, you know, engaged with at the time um, in both teaching and in, in kind of the depths, um, Diane Hamilton, Diane Musho Hamilton, we wrote an article in 2007 called The Pain of Eros, um, you know, and, and that article is actually, I believe, at the end of Return to Eros, and it, it's insanely important. So first of all, I want to just able to yeah it's there it's called appendix a on, on the pain of eros and there's a you know a beautiful you know kind of poem by hafiz where he writes um brother he writes love is grabbing hold of the great lion's mane and wrestling and rolling deep into existence while the beloved gets rough and begins to maul you alive true love my dear is putting an ironclad grip upon the soft, swollen balls of a divine rogue elephant and not having the good fortune to die. Right? So that's how he is, right? So, <laughs> so that's right. So, so we got that, friends, right? That's how he's right on the pain of Eros, right? That's how he's on the pain of Eros, right? You know, and and Leonard Cohen, you know, has, you know, verses about that, right? Right, you know, the, the cold floor, right? Right, love is not, right, a victory march, right? Right, it's the cold marble arch, right? You know, and I've walked this floor before. And so, so I just say two things. And this is, it's a very big deal, and we'll close with this, and we have, but we have to come back to this. And thank you for the, this beautiful inquiry. So first off, there's this notion that exists all through human potential literature, which is you take responsibility for your own interior, and someone else can't insult you, you've decided to be insulted, right? Someone else can't hurt you, you've decided to be hurt. Take responsibility, right? It's, it's right, right? So basically, there's some truth in that, and there's some utter nonsense in it, okay, right? Because if I actually get that my beloved, whoever my beloved is, and I, my many beloveds, that my beloveds are incarnations of the divine, so the divine just insulted me, right? In other words, right? In other words, if I actually get the fullness of what, and if I'm basically a, a, a reductive materialist, right, so then I can kind of ignore right? The slings and arrows, right? Of outrageous misfortune, right? But, but if actually I understand that, that actually my, my beloved is divinity incarnate, well, it hurts when divinity ignores me or when divinity doesn't respond to me. So, so at first I just want to honor hurt, 
right? In other words, and we're all working on getting beyond hurt and getting beyond grief. We actually need to learn how to be in hurt and how to be in grief, right? Grief and hurt is not something you move beyond. It's something that we learn to live in. And that's, that Cohen's all about that, right, Andrew? It's about being in the holy and broken hallelujah, right? So that's, that's one, just to say that, right? It's we've got to be in it. But the second thing I want to say is, is, and there's a lot to say about trigger and there's a lot to say about, you know, trauma and there's a lot to say about all of that. But I, I want to end with this, right? We have to do everything we can in our relationships to be kind, right? And, and I, I, I want to get angry for a second. One of the things that just fucking outrages me, right, is when you see this kind of new, you know, genre for the last 20 years, right, on the web where Kali is hijacked for meanness, right? And that's men and women need to be kind to each other, right? Yes, right, we, we can be filled with rage. Yes, we can be angry, but we need to be kind to each other. And we, we need to kind of create a, a culture of eros where there's not actually room for meanness. There's room for fierceness, right? Kali's fierce, she's not mean. Does everyone get that distinction? It's a really important distinction, right? In other words, and we use Kali as that action excuse for unkindness, for meanness, right? For a kind of a kind of dehumanizing of the other person. And I think, you know, brother, I think that's what you were talking about, right? I want to make sure I pronounce Annis, right? Annis M. And I, I think that's what you were talking about. We can handle fierceness, but men and women, people don't have a right to be mean to each other, period. End of discussion, right? In other words, fierceness, yes. Hurt, yes. Triggered by traumas, yes. But we actually need to create a culture and actually meanness, gratuitous meanness, right, isn't on the table. We have to be kind to each other. We have to be kind to each other even when we're furious with each other. We have to be kind to each other if we're divorcing each other, right? In other words, kindness, right, is huge. And respect is huge, right? And I know that's not simple, but it's possible, right? It's possible. And, and there has to be a way that we come together in the sacred. And even when we step apart, we have to step together, step apart in kindness, right? If, we're, if we need to step apart. And, and, and generally, I think there's a way to never step apart, right? Meaning we can change the form of the relationship. Sometimes we step out for a while, then we step back in in a deeper way and we renew our vows, right, more fiercely than we ever did before, right, on all levels and all lines, all the way up and all the way down, right, right, and so it's, but, but it's always got to be deep kindness, right, deep kindness, and there's never an excuse for a man to be mean to a woman, and there's never an excuse for a woman to be mean to a man, or a man to a man, or a woman to a man, so I want to just make that distinction, right, we, we actually allow for every manner of meanness, Right, under the guise of my trauma, under the guise of my trigger. And actually, it's it's not okay to be unkind for any of us. For any of us, right? You know, so I just want to just kind of maybe close on that note with just a kind of, you know, and and in, you know, Zach and I always talked about in the integral world, right, which is not the world that I live in, but it's, you know, Ken is very important to me. He's a dear friend and uh, you know, Ken Wilbur and a, a co-founder of the center. One of the things that Ken and I talk about often in the integral world is that there's this integral cognition and, and there's no focus on kindness, right? There's a meanness, right? Kind of, it can often kind of 
right? You know, suffuses the dialogue in a kind of sloppy meanness, right? Which is terrible. So and that's the center, the center of authentic, authentic spirit is kindness. And one of the reasons you just got to love the Dalai Lama, and we became friends at a certain point and had a wonderful time, is he's kind, right? So kindness. So just let's be kind to each other before, before, and, before, and, before and after everything else. Deep bow, Brother Andrew. Amen. Right. Thank you. Thank you, Claire. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, everyone, for being here. Lots of love. And as Mark announced, we won't have a call in August, so we'll see each other in September. I'll cancel the call for August. Yay. Yay. Mad love, everyone. What a cra crazy delight. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank Thanks you. So much. Thank you so much. Thank you, Andrew.